Good morning, church. Thank you for that way too kind uh, introduction. That is impossible. Let's just lower our expectations. Can we just do that together? Uh, that would help me a, a lot. Uh, a few introductory remarks before we open scripture together this morning. I want to begin by saying thank you uh, to you as a church. Uh, well, for lots of different things, but particularly for your partnership in our work in our community, uh, we have a nonprofit new community outreach, and many of you have uh, joined us in that work of serving our neighbors, uh, particularly young people who've experienced uh, trauma, and you've come down and you've helped serve in our community garden at Jackie Robinson Elementary School throughout the, the summer. So thank you for that, that partnership in the gospel in that way. We are grateful to you for that, for that regular reminder in a very tangible way uh, that we are the one people of God uh, together. I also want to give honor to where honor is due. Uh, I want to say, uh, I want to just let you know that um, uh, Dr. Michael Emerson, who is here today, uh, is in, in no small part responsible for me being here today. 20-something years ago, I was in grad school minding my own business and my professor recommended this book from the front. He said, if this new book has just come out, it's called Divided by Faith, you should all read it. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll read it. And uh, read the book and just got totally messed up. And in, in some really significant ways, uh, heard God's call to the, the ministry of the, the multiracial church through that book. So uh, if you don't like what you're going to hear today, you blame Dr. Emerson for, uh, for that. Uh, and then uh, I think the, the Reverend Dr. Dean uh, Edwards is here as well, too. And I just want to say um, that as kind of one of the second or third generation uh, pastors in the multiracial church movement, I'd always like to give honor to those who really blazed the trail and, and, and tilled up the soil. And Dr. Edwards is one of those people uh, on the East Coast and here in the Midwest as well. And so... I want to be aware uh, that the, the fruitfulness that we experience uh, today is in no small part because of those women and men uh, who, when there was uh, nothing really to point to, said yes to this call to live into the reconciliation and justice of the people of God in a country that has known so much segregation and division for so long. So thank you, Dr. Edwards, for your, uh, for your example uh, to us. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, this is more of a prayer request uh, because I'm treating you as, uh, as new community family today. Uh, we as a church have been searching for a facility for uh, about a year or so now. And about six months ago, a property came available in our community less than a mile from where we currently worship in a park district facility right now. And when it came on the market, I looked at it on Zillow or whatever it was, and I said, well, that's definitely not going to work for us because it was way too big. And when I say way too much money, I mean Whatever you're picturing, it's more than that. Uh, it, was, uh, it was way too much. And uh, thankfully, there are people in our church who have more faith than I do. And so we started taking some baby steps into this, this process. And we are uh, most likely going to be signing a contract for uh, what used to be St. Ambrose Catholic Church in the next couple of weeks. This is a, a sanctuary that this sanctuary could easily fit inside of a three-story rectory and a three-story parochial school. And so God has lined up uh, partners for these different facilities. But when I tell you it's still going to be miracle after miracle after miracle for this to happen, uh, I just invite you to be prayerful with our community uh, over the next uh, four months or so. Once we sign 
uh, this contract will have about 120 days uh, to raise more money than I can even picture in my head. So uh, we need God to do something uh, amazing if this is where, where God is leading. So uh, would you be willing to pray with us about that over the next little bit? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's pray together before we open scripture. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word that has already been sung and spoken today, for the truth of our testimonies and from your scriptures that we have already encountered today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that any good, true, and pleasing word is only from you, and so we can rely and trust and relinquish ourselves whatever it is that you would desire to, to say to your people today. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the faithfulness of these women and men uh, to continue to say yes to you, to continue to bear witness, a beautiful, beautiful witness to you in this community. I thank you particularly for this congregation's leaders who have been depending on your Holy Spirit who have been listening to you and saying yes to you for the, the ministry staff and the, uh, the life group leaders and the members of the leadership team and the ministry team leaders and, and so many others uh, who have heard your invitation to serve in such sacrificial ways. Lord, would you bless them? Would you fill them up? Would you clarify their calling at the beginning of this new year? I thank you as well for the, uh, the new folks who you've been inviting to this congregation. And I pray, even as this membership announcement reminded us, that they would quickly find their place uh, among this people. And that very quickly they would be able to say, uh, this is us, uh, that I am a part of this uh, particular people. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would reveal yourself uh, as we open scripture together, that the gospel that I proclaim today would be good news to all of us in whatever form uh, we need to each receive it today. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I'm going to be in a few different scriptures this morning, uh, and from these I'm preaching from the title, A Better Story and a Better Meal. A better story and a better meal. On the top shelf of my bookshelf in our home office, I keep a beautiful wood sewing box, which was made many, many years ago by one of my great-grandfathers. The craftsmanship and the attention to detail is wonderful. And while I know absolutely nothing about sewing, I love taking it down, lifting its lid, opening its many small drawers and compartments. My youngest son, Winston, who's here with my wife Maggie and my son Elliot today, he's really into old things, ancient things, vintage things. And so he will sometimes ask me to take it down so that he can explore the box and its contents. He knows to handle it very gently and carefully. And when he's done looking through it, I will carefully put it back on the shelf high above our heads. I think this is often how we treat the Bible. We approach it with respect and even awe. We handle it delicately before placing it back on the shelf for safekeeping. Now, your image for Scripture 
may not be an old handcrafted wooden box, but if you are like most of us, you have some metaphor, some image guiding how you engage with the Bible. And again, if you are like most of us, that metaphor, that image, doesn't necessarily lead you to regular life-giving time with Scripture. American Christians are notorious for being surrounded with Bibles on our shelves, on our screens, even as we spend very little time actually absorbing Scripture. So during this first month of a new year, you're going to hear from four different preachers about the role of the Bible in the lives of those who've given their lives to Jesus. You'll hear from Minister Tim White, from Dr. Edwards, and you're going to hear from a guy who looks a little bit like me, just a few years older. That would be my father. This morning, I want to begin by challenging whatever images of the Bible you and I hold, images which keep us from regularly entering the scriptures. And in place of those fragile and distancing images, I want to suggest that the Bible itself offers two helpful and hospitable images for how we might approach it as a story and as a meal. The Bible is an invitation to the story of God and it is an invitation to a meal which truly, deeply satisfies. But before we get to these two images for Scripture... Images which I hope will invite each of us to take the Bible down from the top shelf and live with it this year. We need to spend a few minutes first thinking about what the Bible is. And to do this, we need to think about Revelation. You see, when we talk about God, we are talking about a being who is completely categorically different than us. God is not like you. God is not like me. God is so distinct, so utterly other, that there is no way for you or I to engage with this God. Which raises a question then of, how is it that we can know God? And the first and perhaps most straightforward answer is that we can know God by simply looking around us, by paying attention to God's good world. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. Paul says we can know God by looking around the world. As a pastor, I don't really get the weekend off, and so I take Tuesdays as my day off. And 
On most Tuesdays, sometime around mid-morning, I walk out of our apartment, I walk down to, to, to Medici Bakery, I get a cup of coffee, and then I walk over to Jackson Park. It's about a 10-minute walk from our apartment. It's a beautiful, large park there on the south side next to the lake. And, and for the next hour or two or three or four, I wander around Jackson Park. Now, I'm often looking for birds because I like to see birds. And I might bring a book and sit on a bench for a little while. But if you were to see me walking Jackson Park on a Tuesday, you would maybe be a little concerned <laughs> because I just sort of wander and meander and I might stand and just look at a tree for a little while and sometimes if nobody's around I'll go up and I'll touch the tree, Minister White. And I like to think of myself as kind of a modern day Francis of Assisi on Tuesdays, if you catch the reference, inviting all of the birds and the bees to praise their Lord. And, and here's the interesting thing. I find myself praying as I'm walking through Jackson Park, but it's not a choice. It's not a discipline. I'm not praying because I think I should pray. It's just that I'm naturally responding to what is around me. I, found, I find myself provoked to praise the God who's created the beauty I find myself in the midst of. I find certain petitions and requests, people I've not thought about for a long time, prompted by the Holy Spirit coming to heart and mind, lifting them up to God in prayer. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about, the way that the world itself points to its creator. This is one of the ways we can know God. But this is not enough. Your perception and my perception of the world, no matter how hard we are looking, is not enough for us to know God. And this is for two different reasons. One, we are creatures, not the creator. To be a creature is to be inherently limited. How many of you know that when you live past your limits, it never ends well? And we see this beginning all the way at the Garden of Eden. The temptation is still strong, but we are creatures, which means we are limited, and there is only so much we can say about the one who created us. That's one reason that looking around at the world is not enough to know the God who created us. The second reason is because the sinfulness that is a part of the human experience naturally clouds our ability to relate with God. Sin has many impacts on our lives, many impacts on our lives. But one of those is that instead of making God the center of our lives, you and I are prone to make ourselves the center of our own lives. Our experiences, our circumstances, our emotions, our agendas, our priorities, all of these things congeal to make ourselves the center of our lives rather than the one who created us. And so because of our creatureliness and our sinfulness, we are unable to speak with any kind of precision and accuracy about the God who made us. So Paul goes on in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1 to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, we cannot know God, 
Not precisely, not clearly on our own. We may have a sense about God, but there's not a whole lot we can say about God on our own. We certainly cannot know intimacy with God or the relationality that we were created for. I think we kind of get this because all of us have been in some sort of a relationship where we, we kind of assumed that we knew this other person. And then you learn that you didn't really know this other person. Anybody have this experience? And all of a sudden you understand, well, there's a whole lot of distance between the two of us. There's only so much we can know about this God. And so there's only so much relationality and intimacy we can experience with this God. This is a, whole, this is a very, very long way of saying that to know God, to know God intimately and relationally, God has to reveal himself to us. Revelation, according to one theologian, is God's self-disclosure through his acts and his words. Through his acts and his words. Now, I actually think that makes sense whether or not you are a Christian this morning. I don't think you have to be a Christian to say amen to that. Because if there is a God, this God must be categorically different than everybody else. If God is actually God. So how else could we know this God except that God would show God's self to us? Reveal God's self to us. Even more, if there is a God, then this God must be perfectly holy to be God. Perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving. And none of us are any of those things perfectly. Somebody say amen. And so we would expect and anticipate that this God would have to reveal himself to us. Think of Revelation as the anti-New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions are all about the thing I'm going to do this year, the thing I'm not going to do this year. Revelation is the confession of what I cannot do, that I cannot know God on my own, that I need God to reveal himself to me. Revelation. And there's a few different ways that Christians have understood God to reveal God's self to us. The first we've already talked about, it's in God's creation. We get hints and whispers and signs of this God. The, the second way is, is through Jesus. This is God's perfect revelation. This is what we just celebrated in Christmas, the Son of God there at the beginning, who created all things, taking on human flesh so that we could know God. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is God's revelation perfectly expressed. And then the third way is what we are talking about this morning, which is through Scripture. Now, I don't think you have to be a Christian to have gone with me this far. To say, yes, if there is a God, God would have to reveal God's self to us. Because of God's holiness and perfection and love and beauty and justice, God would have to reveal God's self to us. But now we move into the realm where faith is required. As we begin to talk about how God reveals 
God's self to us in Scripture, we are talking about a measure of faith. Because when it comes to how God reveals himself to us in Scripture, we are talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are talking about how God's Spirit communicates to us from beginning to end, from writing to reading, from writing to interpreting, from writing to applying, from beginning to end. So the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 verses 20 through 21 writes this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For the prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God chooses to use frail human beings from the real stuff of our lives, the complexities, the doubts, the confusion, but empowered by the Holy Spirit to communicate God's voice to us. This is why when we talk about Scripture, we often refer to Scripture as God's Word. God's Word for us revealed in Scripture because the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of this book to communicate God's Word to us. So the Holy Spirit is involved at the beginning but also, and very importantly, and often overlooked, the Holy Spirit is involved as you and I engage with Scripture. So the author of Hebrews says, For the Word of God is alive and active. Why is the Word alive and active? Because the Holy Spirit of God is the one who applies God's word to us. Is the one who lifts the words off this page and makes them a scalpel to our soul. So we are dependent on the Spirit from beginning to end. This is God's revelation to us in Scripture. A few years ago, no more than a few years ago, uh, about ten years ago, in fact, I think I was still at this church, so it was longer than that. It was a long time ago. Somebody actually in this church gave me tickets to go to Lollapalooza. And I went and quickly figured out that I was too old for Lollapalooza. <laughs> this was a good 13, 14, 15 years ago. I decided that standing out in the hot sun watching... Uh, uh, bands next to teenagers who had been overserved was my idea of a good time anymore. But thank you to the person who gave me the tickets. It was a good experience. On the first day, as I'm walking out of Grant Park, uh, I encounter on the street corner a street preacher with the mic stand set up and the, and the signs and the whole nine. You can picture the scene. And this person is going to town telling Anybody and everybody, how wrong we are, how messed up we are, where we're going to go if we don't. You, again, you get the picture. You've seen this sort of scene before. And a few weeks later, I was giving a teaching, and I used this person as an example of, uh, of, a, of a distraction to the gospel. And I just talked about how, how street preachers in general are a distraction to the gospel. Just, uh, keep people from hearing the message of God's love and salvation for us. And a, and a new friend uh, came up to me after my teaching, a, a pastor from the Bronx, and he said, hey, that was great, but I disagree with you. He said, I've known plenty of street preachers who have preached very clearly God's salvation in a way that was uh, loving and winsome. 
And I thought about that. I thought, well, no, that's, that's a good point. Because I could stand on a, on a street corner and just read scripture out loud or maybe just pray out loud or engage people in conversations. And there wouldn't be anything inherently distracting <laughs> about that. So I, well, so what was it about that experience that, that was so troubling to me? And, and here's what I landed on. I think that that particular street preacher was not relying on the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word of God to people's hearts. I think this street preacher thought that it was his responsibility to apply Scripture to people's hearts. I, I think he felt like, I have to get you to believe this. I have to convince you that this is true. And how many of you know that when we make God's responsibility, our responsibility, we always end up manipulating and coercing people. We always end up exerting our power over someone else for our ends. Now, you don't have to be a street preacher to mess the Bible up in that way. You can do this in your own private devotional time. You can come in the morning, open up the Bible and say, now I got to get something out of this today. I, I need a word today. I need God to say this thing to me today. I need to apply this to my situation today. And we can do the same kind of manipulative, coercive thing on our own. When we forget that it's actually the Holy Spirit of the living God who applies the active and living God's word to our lives. So from beginning to end, Scripture is God's revelation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The denomination that we're a part of that Mickey mentioned earlier, the Evangelical Covenant Church, says it this way. The Holy Scripture, the Old and New Testament, is the word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. When we say that the Holy Scripture is the Word of God, we are saying that this book is God's revelation for us. It is His Word, the Word of God. And then we go on to add that it is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. When people say that the Scriptures are authoritative, this is what we mean. Scriptures are central because they apply to every single area of our lives. Because this book is God's revelation to us, we treat it as his very word. And because the Holy Spirit continues to reveal God's word through Scripture, we make it central to every area, every aspect of our lives. But how do we do this? How do we make God's revealed word in Scripture central to our lives? Well, again, some of us see this book as being too holy for us. We revere it, and yet we leave it on the shelf like my antique box. Others of us, we seek to master Scripture. We look for the perfect theology, the perfect system, the perfectly articulated doctrine that will allow us to say, I understand this book. And I can explain it all to you. 
I can make it all fit. I can make it all work. Still others of us take, maybe we call it the, uh, the New Year's resolution approach, the disciplined approach. We look at scripture the way some of us look at a bowl of broccoli or a treadmill. We know it's important and we're going to make ourselves do it, but there's very little joy in the process. And so in contrast to these images, and you can probably think of others, I want to end by considering the Bible as an invitation. We've already seen that it is the presence of the Holy Spirit who opens us up to God's word. There is an invitation here. An invitation to participate with God in God's revealed word. An invitation to what? An invitation to a story and an invitation to a meal. A story. The Bible, front to back, is a story. It's a story that takes a whole bunch of different forms. History, poetry, epistles, apocalyptic literature, and so on. But ultimately, the Bible is a story. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson says it takes the whole Bible to read any part of the Bible. This story is the story of God's salvation of the universe. A salvation perfectly accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself treats scripture as this kind of a story. He's walking along the road of Emmaus after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He tells them the story. John 20 and 31, the author says, But these, these scriptures, these testimonies are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The scriptures are a story of God's salvation for the universe. And the thing about stories is that they are meant to be heard. They are meant to be listened to. It's hard to hear a story when it's noisy, when we won't stop talking, when we won't turn down the volume. The Bible asks us, at least occasionally, to be quiet, to listen. Consider your favorite place to read a good book. Like if you had a free Saturday afternoon and you've got this book you've been looking forward to, where would you read it? Or consider your ritual, and I know some of you have a ritual, before settling into the couch for movie night. Getting your drink just where you want it to be and your popcorn and your slippers and the whole situation. The Bible, as a story, asks us to be attentive, to listen. If the Bible is a story, if the Bible is the story of Jesus and our salvation, then we will be deeply interested in what the author of this story intends us to see and to hear and to understand. 
too often you and I come to Scripture attempting to address our needs, our wants, and our feelings. And while Scripture will address our needs, our wants, our feelings, we must understand that you and I have no claim on this book. This is God's word. This is God's revelation. We don't come to this book with ourselves as the starting point. This is not our story. This is God's story. Amen? We do not come to the Bible to confirm our agenda. We come to discover God's agenda. With this in mind, an early theologian in our denomination, a guy named P.P. Waldenstrom, said that when we approach the Bible, we must do so in three ways. First, we approach with humility and prayer. Humility and prayer. Second, we read to learn the truth rather than to confirm our opinions. And third, we read ready to obey unconditionally. I don't like that last one. <laughs> I, I want to keep my options open. I want to think about things. Maybe this sounds like too much to treat the Bible like a story. But again, consider that this book is God's story. And the best stories are the ones which claim our lives. We talk about getting caught up in a good story. The film that caught you by surprise, causing you to look at the circumstances of your life in a new way. The novel you pick up time and time again for the way that it cuts through the murkiness and the confusion in your life. When we read the Bible as a story, we find that it claims us. And as we come to trust the author, we turn to these pages humbly. Submitting to the God whose words spoke the very plot of the universe into existence. Whose words spoke the plot of your life into existence. The Bible is an invitation to a story. And then finally, the Bible is an invitation to a good meal. In the middle of a very strange book comes this very strange verse. Revelations chapter 10. John is having a vision and he says, So I went to the angel and asked him to give me this little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll, this is the word of God, this is scripture, from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah also ate scripture. This is a theme that we find in the Bible. What does it mean to come to scripture as a meal? Let me suggest three things. First, it means that we eat slowly. Scripture will give you indigestion. John said, mm, it tasted good going down. But then it started messing me up from the inside. Scripture is meant to be 
eaten slowly. You and I are conditioned for a fast food diet, to get it quick, to make it go down easy, to give me the word that I need for today, to post that little nice square that's been perfectly curated on Instagram. Here's my scripture for the day. Scripture as a meal is meant to be consumed slowly over the course of our life. Secondly, we eat scripture to be nourished, not to conquer. Have you been into one of these restaurants where you walk in and there's like a, a, a bunch of pictures on the wall of all of the people who have conquered the all-you-can-eat-whatever? Here's a 10-pound hamburger, and if you can actually finish it without dying, you can have it for free, and we'll put the picture up on the wall. I was in a restaurant this summer, and they had Nathan's hot dog eating contest on the television. I have never seen something so disgusting in my whole life. Has anybody seen this? They dunk the hot dog in the bun in water, and then they just, it's terrible. It is when, when archaeologists excavate our civilization one day, that's going to be what summarizes our American way of life. I, I'm convinced of this. But this is how we are conditioned to eat, to conquer the meal. I ate the whole thing. Maybe we're more sophisticated about it. We post to Instagram these beautiful meals that we've eaten at these very nice places, taking pictures of each course along the way. We don't eat scripture to conquer. We eat to nourish. We are taking God's very word into ourselves. The revelation of the creator of the universe is entering our very lives. How can it not change us? How can it not nourish us? How can it not transform us? After the New Year's Eve service that we broadcast from here, uh, Carlton and I, along with one of our good friends, we went out for Christmas Eve dinner. My family was out of town, and three of us didn't have anywhere better to be. So we said, we're going to be together on Christmas Eve. We found a, a restaurant that was open and made us a delicious handmade pasta dinner, sat around for two hours, slowly eating and talking catching up. It was a meal that nourished me. I walked away feeling filled up, partly because of the food, it was good, but mostly because of the company I kept around that table. This is what scripture is meant to do for us as we eat and savor the word of God. And then finally, we eat best when it comes to scripture in community with others, the life groups that we heard about today. I can eat alone. That's not great for me if I eat alone a lot. I, I tend to eat standing up, maybe scrolling through my phone, eating way quicker than I need to eat and not being all that aware of what I'm actually putting into my mouth. But when I sit down, as with Carlton and our friend, I eat slowly, attentively, I pay attention. This is what happens when we eat scripture together. Our church has a weekly Bible study and, and after the teaching we break into small groups and, and I love the diversity of my small group, age, gender, race, and ethnicity. And I have to say, and I hope it won't hurt any of the other members' feelings, that 
the favorite, my favorite member of our small group is a young eight-year-old boy who's a part of our small group. And whenever we're reading the scripture, he wants to, to, to read as well. And he's often coloring or, you know, talking to his dad about something. But then he'll have questions and comments and observations. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that I eat better because of that eight-year-old's presence. Because of his perspective and his experience and his concerns that he brings with him to the scriptures. I eat better and am filled up more because I'm eating with him. Are you with me? We eat better together. Because the Bible is God's revelation, we make it central to our lives. And we can do so by accepting it as an invitation to a story and to a meal. Now, I'm almost done. Uh, and, and the way I want to end today is by inviting you to come forward for prayer. Uh, Minister Tim is going to be available. I'll be available. I think there's some prayer folks as well. Um, and, and during the, the closing song and, and even after the benediction, uh, I'm going to ask that you come forward to be prayed for on this second Sunday of the new year. I would suggest that there's not a single person here today who does not need to hear from God in 2023. Amen? And the, the radical claim that Christians have always made is that God speaks. That God speaks. That God has made himself known through creation, through his word, and perfectly through his son Jesus. And so my invitation to you this morning as we close is that you would come forward and allow someone to pray a blessing over you for this new year. That your ears would be attentive. That your heart would be soft. That you would desire to hear from God and to respond to God in 2023. Does that make sense? I don't know how comfortable y'all are at doing altar calls, Minister White. So if you're not comfortable, I'm just asking you to be a little uncomfortable. Is that okay? You never have to invite me back. That's all right. But there's not a whole lot of times in our lives where we have the space to, with our whole bodies, say yes to Jesus among the people of God. Those times and spaces are few and far between. And so we want to set that table for you today to come forward in a couple of minutes and to allow someone. Now, maybe you come with a specific prayer request. We'd love to pray for you about that as well. Um, but if nothing else, allow us to pray God's blessing over you that you would be tender and available in this new year. So before I invite you to come hear this conclusion, in the pages of Scripture, we find not only that there is a God, but that this God loves us enough to reveal himself to us. That's amazing. And so I invite you to come to Scripture this year as a story. Here we find a story at turns strange and surprising and stunning. It is a story from a far-off country where very unexpectedly we find ourselves making repeated appearances in the narrative. Poems about sheep and shepherds and dry valleys find resonance somehow in our contemporary lives. Apocalyptic stanzas about dragons and seas turned to blood speak to the chaos of politics and pandemics. Parables about 
lost coins and lost sons speak to a people formed by cutthroat capitalism about a different kind of kingdom, one ordered by God's gift and grace. You see, we cannot help but find ourselves in this story because it is God's story. And we, women and men formed in the image of God, find ourselves again and again the recipients of his saving and restoring love. Come to the scriptures this year as a meal. We come into this new year hungry, don't we? Some of us famished. As the prophet Isaiah said long ago, we have spent our money on what is not bread, on labor, what does not satisfy. But here we find a table set before us in the presence of our enemies and our anxieties, of our failures and our foolishness, of our sinned against and our sinned againstness. It is a table overflowing with mercy and forgiveness, holiness and righteousness, grace, grace, and more grace. Which is to say that at this table we find a meal which actually satisfies. Why? Because this meal points us to God's perfect revelation to his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To you and to me, he says again, this is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Here, friends, finally is the end of all of our cravings the fulfillment of all of our desires, the satisfaction of our purpose. Scripture is a sufficient meal because it leads us to the one who is the creator of all things and the redeemer of all things. In the words of Isaiah again, he says to you, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You are invited to a story and to a meal. And so, sisters and brothers, our God is not a long ways off. He has not forgotten you. He stands ready to show you your place in his story, to feed you from his table. So take and read. Take and eat. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray over you, and then the worship team will lead us. And then I'm going to invite you to urge you. Uh, prayer ministers, if there's other prayer ministers, go ahead and come on, stand up front here. Please do not be shy this morning at the top of this new year. Allow the gospel of God's grace to be prayed over your life once again. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God, we creatures formed in your image give you thanks 
for never leaving us without a witness to yourself. All of creation testifies to you. In Christ Jesus, your Son and our Savior, we have seen you. And in Holy Scripture, made alive to us by your Spirit, your Word speaks to us today. Thank you for this story. Help us to hear the invitation to read prayerfully, truthfully, and obediently. Thank you for this meal. Help us to eat unhurriedly for true nourishment and in the joyful presence of our sisters and brothers. And now, Lord, as we sing, I pray that your spirit would again invite us to come, to allow our sisters and brothers to pray your gospel truth over us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen. So church, I invite you to not be shy. We'll be up here ready to pray for you as we sing, as we benedict you. Hear again the invitation to allow the gospel to be more than an idea, more than a theory, but to be the very story of your life and the meal which sustains you.